Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Indigenous Peoples Day weekend, so we have a clips episode for you this week. My first guest is Eleanor Jones Harvey, the curator of Alexander von Humboldt in the United States, Art, Nature, and Culture at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington. The exhibition examines the impacts of Humboldt's six-week visit to the United States in 1804 and how his influence extended into American art, science, literature, diplomacy, and much more. It's on view now, and it will remain on view through January 3rd, 2021. Sam is requiring timed entry passes. They're available free online. We'll have a link at manpodcast.com. The excellent exhibition catalog for the show is published by Princeton University Press. Amazon and IndieBound both listed at around $63. We'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com as well. On the second segment, Adrian L. Childs on Riffs and Relations, African-American Artists in the European Modernist Tradition, which is about to return to the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. But first, Eleanor Harvey, after the break. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, thousands of people around the globe have taken on challenges from Getty and other museums to recreate famous works of art at home. Astonishing in their creativity, wit, and ingenuity, these photographs remind us of the power of art to unite us and bring joy during troubled times. The new book, Off the Walls, Inspired Recreations of Iconic Artworks, celebrates these imaginative recreations, bringing highlights from the Getty Museum Challenge together in one whimsical, irresistible volume. Getty Publications will donate all profits from the sale of this book to the charity Artist Relief. Get your copy at shop.getty.edu. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton McDonald Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American abstract artists, such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhardt, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Carone, known for their participation in abstract expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of non-figural or abstract art. For more information on Small Abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Eleanor Harvey, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's good to be here again. Before we get 34-year-old Alexander von Humboldt to America, where upon arrival, he pretty much waltzed right into a series of meetings and dinners with the president of the country. Who was he and how did he come to be in the Americas at the end of the 18th century and at the very beginning of the 19th? Alexander von Humboldt was a Prussian naturalist who came from an upper middle class family. He had a great education, but he was restless to travel. And although his mother preferred him to be either a banker or they settled on a mining engineer, he had met Georg Forster, who traveled with Captain James Cook on his second voyage and really wanted to see the world. And so after his mother died and he came into a fortune, Humboldt decided to dedicate his life to traveling as far as he could 
amassing as much information as he could about natural history so that he could expand on his emergent idea that all of nature operated as one planetary ecosystem, that if he understood the relationships between things, that we would come out with a better understanding of our planet as a whole. Because Napoleon was in the middle of uh, European conquests, a lot of the natural avenues for Humboldt were shut down. Napoleon had invaded Egypt. He had invaded Italy. He had gone down the Iberian Peninsula. And so what happens to Humboldt is that he ends up in Spain, where he gets an audience with the Spanish king and asks if he can have access to the colonies in the Americas. Normally, those are cut off from all European travelers as a matter of national security. But Humboldt had a tantalizing offer for the king. He said, I'm a mining engineer. I will bring you back information about geography. I will draw maps. I will do economic studies. I will tell you where the extraction possibilities are. And oh, by the way, I will pay for all of it myself. And the Spanish king relented and said, knock yourself out. So in 1799, Humboldt and a French botanist, Aimé Bonpland, set off for Venezuela and will spend the next four years crisscrossing Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru, spend a year in Mexico. And then as they are pulling together all of their materials in Cuba and waiting for a Spanish frigate to take them back to France, the assistant consul ends up striking up a conversation with Humboldt, and Humboldt's quite the talker, and he realizes that Humboldt is carrying a map of North America that he has created in the Spanish archives, and that this would be immensely helpful to Jefferson, who has just completed the Louisiana Purchase, but knows nothing about what exists between, say, modern-day Louisiana and modern-day Texas and the American Southwest. And so he convinces Humboldt. He says, look, you know, you, you've admired American democracy. You've read Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. You want to meet the man. He's just up the coast. When are you ever going to be closer? And convinces Humboldt to take the detour to Philadelphia and then make the trip to Washington in order to meet Thomas Jefferson and Vincent Gray hopes to share that map. So Humboldt's first stop in the United States is, as you mentioned, Philadelphia, where he quickly, very quickly, enters the orbit of the Peel family. Before we get to the Peels, how did Humboldt know how to network his way into Philadelphia and toward the Peels? What happened is that when Vincent Gray watched Humboldt set sail for Philadelphia, he immediately fired off a letter to his boss, Secretary of State James Madison, and he says, this guy is coming. He is a respected naturalist. He's carrying a map. Please be nice to him. And so the word had gotten up to Philadelphia through the American Philosophical Society that Humboldt was coming. Of all of the people in the United States, it is the members of the APS who would have known who Humboldt was. They already had some of his his early publications on their shelves. A number of them were in touch with Humboldt's mentors in Göttingen, who were honorary members of the APS. And so the stage was really set. And I think that when Peel volunteered to go rescue Humboldt out of quarantine off the docks of Philadelphia, it was partly because as both a naturalist and a scientist and a friend of Jefferson's that I think he felt this was an unparalleled opportunity to meet this man and to be his, his squire about town. And it is a job that he went into with relish. Charles Wilson Peel was the patriarch of the first family of art, at least, in, in the mid-Atlantic region. So why was Charles Wilson Peale so interested in Humboldt? And indeed, what did he have to, to kind of offer Humboldt? 
What he had to offer Humboldt was two things. As a patriot, he had served with George Washington in the Revolutionary War. As a scientist, he was a fellow member of the APS, which Thomas Jefferson still maintained the presidency of, even after becoming president of uh, the entire country. And as an artist and as the proprietor of one of the first museums in the United States, Peel believed deep down that art and natural history were the basis of a civics lesson for Americans, a way of understanding democracy by understanding and taking pride in your country and its assets, both intellectual assets, scientific assets, natural history assets, and the works of art that would help promote a sense of cultural identity. And so he's got a lot of reasons for wanting to meet Humboldt. And so my guess is that one of the things he's really interested in is being able to take Humboldt to his museum, his world in miniature, because that is really the natural corollary to what Humboldt is trying to do writ large by amassing information about the entire planet. What Peel is doing is a microcosm of that in trying to help people understand America. So what does the shared interest Peel and Humboldt had in each other? Tell us about the proximity of art to science and science to art in early 19th century Europe and, starting about now, in America. What seems abundantly clear from Humboldt's work is that it's not just the data, it's the visualization of the data that really matters. And it's the idea that you need to be able to quite literally paint a picture in imagery as well as be able to then write up a compelling story behind it. And so for Humboldt, who illustrates his own journals and will supervise every single engraving that comes out of his 36 books, this is a man who is dedicated to making sure that he is equally clear in print and in visual images. For Peel, I think it's a matter of understanding that Art is, to him, one of the most important professions that you can have. It, it may seem strange in 21st century America to think about art as a pinnacle achievement rather than as a luxury, but I think the truth of the matter is that he really believed that that was his most eloquent teaching tool, is what he could show you visually rather than what he ended up writing about it. Part of it is, you know, Peel is not necessarily the world's most literate person. His spelling is extraordinarily creative, but he is maniacally interested in teaching and conveying information. Humboldt is using his books, his lectures, social events, the Paris salons as an opportunity to really spread that knowledge. An increase in diffusion of knowledge is kind of an 18th century catchphrase, and Humboldt uses it quite a bit. But it's not just the motto of the Smithsonian. It really talks to an Enlightenment-era worldview that the more you know, the better equipped you are to take your place in the world and handle what happens. Everybody wins as thinking of the present. What are the major artworks that come out of the time Peel and Humboldt spent with each other? The first piece is something that literally comes out during that time, which is the portrait of Humboldt that Peel paints. He's come out of retirement. He's in his 60s. He's kind of considered himself, you know, I'm getting too old for this. And he says, you know, James is going to get me the paints and he's going to set me up in this room. And oh my God, I've got three days and I don't know whether I can do this. And he's so happy with the portrait that first of all, he puts it in his museum. So Humboldt becomes one of the luminaries along with our leading statesmen and scientists as though we have literally adopted him in 1804. The second thing that happens is Peel decides, 
decides, well, you know, there's still life in the old man yet. And so he begins working on what he thinks of as his last big history painting, which is the exhumation of the Mastodon, which is simultaneously a landscape, a history painting, and a civics lesson about, I think, quite literally excavating America's identity in the form of Mastodon bones out of what looks like primordial ooze in a marl pit in upstate New York, very close to where George Washington had his final headquarters during the Revolutionary War, so that it becomes a way of understanding the the literal creation myth of the United States using the skeleton of a mammoth, or now we call it a mastodon, as a kind of a, an index or the scale and scope of America's cultural ambitions. From there, Peel will continue to let the kids run the museum, but at the end of his life, or at least closer to the end of his life in 1822, he will come out of retirement a second time to paint the artist in his museum, which is his version of what I would think of as what Humboldt will do in Cosmos, kind of a summation of all aspects of his life as a way of, again, positioning himself at the apex of this triangle that brings together art, culture, and history as a civics lesson for Americans. We will come back to Cosmos when we discuss Frederick Church in a minute. But while we're still in this early American moment, Is part of your argument here that Humboldt is responsible for, or at least most responsible for, for how American culture, poetry, art, fiction, and so on, embraced wilderness and later landscape as the defining elements of of the national culture? I think that he is an extraordinarily influential voice in steering us down that path. I think there's no question that if you go back and read Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, he has tentatively set us down the path of countering all of the European criticisms coming out of Buffon and Depot and the Abbe Reynal, who are all dismissive of the Americas in general as being less than, weaker than, and a physically degenerate climate for culture and for humankind, he's basically saying, but we have the mammoth and we have natural bridge and we have this output. And he uses his home state as a test case for how those arguments are completely wrong. What Humboldt will do is arrive in 1804 and essentially say, oh, you're not just absolutely wrong in Europe. It's like, I can take Jefferson's argument and take you one step further, having just spent four years in South America and Mexico. It's as though he were saying to Jefferson, between you and me, we've got these guys. Let's go get them. And so I think what he does is, it's not so much that he redirects us to embracing nature. He essentially reaffirms Jefferson's instincts to use nature, and the two of them together essentially push harder and faster and further down that path so that it becomes a real American ethos. But I actually think Jefferson is probably the one who should be given a good deal of credit for having started it. I think it's Humboldt who, with his increasingly influential imprimatur, gives it the kind of rocket boost that it needs to take hold. As you mentioned, Jefferson was willing to meet with Humboldt in part because Humboldt had an important key to a new region of the country, one that the borders of which that the United States had not yet finally negotiated. What impact did Humboldt have on how the United States would investigate this new territory of the Louisiana Purchase and indeed on the lands to the west of it? Humboldt was 
a big proponent of exploration and investigation as part of this insatiable desire to know the entire world. He also, I think, was rather pragmatic about the fact that he understood that exploration would mean exploitation. I don't think he was a purist on that front. And I think that he understood that that was a necessary evil that was part of the cost of doing business. He was a mining engineer. He was a mining engineer, and he was interested in what could be extracted. When we discover gold out west, he wants to know how big is the biggest nugget? Where did you find it? You know, what was the matrix? I mean, he's really interested in what's here in terms of landmarks, but also in terms of the mineral wealth of the continent. So he's crushed that Lewis and Clark had left just by a matter of weeks before Humboldt got there. Although I'm sure Humboldt's companions at that point were like, oh, thank God we finally can go home. Because I think Humboldt probably would have attached himself to Lewis and Clark had that been an option. He was already worried that the two had not taken along the best and most sophisticated measuring equipment, that his own understanding of how to use the 42 instruments that he had hauled across South America would have made him an asset to that trip. But it's very clear that what he leaves Jefferson with is the belief that what they come back with is the beginning of establishing the American imprimatur on the global stage, that we will make our impact based on what is already here, not necessarily what we build on it. And so the European history of cathedrals and castles and architectural landmarks is not something we're in a position to compete with. But when it comes to Natural Bridge and Niagara Falls and then the great Americans, you know, Midwest, the, the Great Plains, the Rockies, and eventually Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon, we will escalate the idea that our sense of identity and worth will come through natural landmarks and through what we discover as we move west. The actual impact will be that every single explorer after Lewis and Clark will take Humboldt's books and maps with them. Stephen Long actually has his books on the Western Engineer. He is carrying a copy of Humboldt's map. James Wilkinson, in his abortive attempt to carve off a part of the Louisiana Purchase with Aaron Burr and set up a new country, pirates a copy of Humboldt's map, gives it to Zebulon Pike, so that when Pike is out in the Southwest, that he's got a little bit more intelligence about what's going on there. And so what Humboldt does geopolitically is give Jefferson and Madison a leg up on the negotiations with Spain, but it also gives every American explorer a leg up on not only what to expect out west of the Appalachian Mountains, but how to record that, how to follow in Humboldt's footsteps and be accurate in your cartographic measurements and be able to take that information and the specimens that you bring back and make that part of a global understanding of the planet that we live on. These post-Humboldt expeditions into America's various Wests all prioritize the creation of visual material. Everything from sketches of landscape and landscape features to map making to botanical illustration when these expeditions return to the East Coast and they want to catalog what they, what they found and what's there. Does all of that descend from Humboldt? I think a lot 
lot of it does, actually, because Lewis and Clark, it's not a visual voyage except for the maps. And so there is no sense that they're supposed to be bringing back sketchbooks full of things. They bring back word pictures, but they don't bring back, they bring back specimens, but they don't bring back images. And that really does start with Stephen Long taking Titian Ramsey Peel and Samuel Seymour out with him. So I do think that that notion that what you produce should be visual as well as literary does come out of that Humboldtian paradigm. In these years, and, and, and indeed as these decades increase across the 19th century, America is obsessed with how it stood in relation to Europe and wanting to measure up. And this continues well into the Gilded Age, I think you could say. Humboldt, as you mentioned earlier, thought America was the equal of Europe in many natural ways, which was certainly not something Americans had ever heard from a European at that point. What are some of the ways in which artists picked up on Humboldt's assessment and extended it or ran with it or built upon it? I think that the way artists picked up on it was the understanding that the visual record really did matter, that it wasn't just the province of upper class patrons, but that this democratizes art in a way that means that your audience is broadened beyond the fine arts world into the rank and file of K through 12 education, of the exploring community, the scientific community, because what you're bringing back is visual evidence of what we are. It's as though you are making the continent visually available to people regardless of their state of literacy. And I think that you know, for a lot of people, particularly pre-photography, but even post-photography, it's also about proof. It's about veracity that these things do exist and that you're not just taking someone's word for it, but there's actually a picture that goes along with it. And so I think that if you look at the Stephen Long expedition in particular, its scientific results were somewhat mixed, but there's no question that the published record of that expedition with its illustrations was immensely influential. Fenimore Cooper and Washington Irving, you know, sitting in Paris with Humboldt, they are all reading the Long Expedition Report, and that is informing Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales. It is inspiring Irving to go west on a tour of the prairies when he gets back to the United States. It sparks Irving spending time with Humboldt trying to figure out why we're called America instead of Columbia and figuring out that it starts with Waldsee Mueller's map. It's a desire, I think, for American to really understand that they have a past and that that past is not necessarily architectural or cultural, but that it is grounded in nature. One of the first and biggest ways that comes together in the book, this idea of veracity, of showing people what's really out there, especially given that Easterners, Easterners didn't really have much of a context for much of the Trans-Rockies West, bringing that together with science, with, with anti-slavery, Humboldt was a furious abolitionist. There's much about that in the catalog over which we're kind of skipping at the moment. Science, landscape, politics, that most comes together first in the book in, in the work of Carlton Watkins at Yosemite in 1861, when Watkins brings together all of that in a remarkable series of pictures that seeks to respond or that does respond to the West's wavering unionism and to the ongoing civil war. What are some of the ways in which Watkins, who 
never met Humboldt, of course, we're talking many decades later, but but probably knew of his work. What are some of the ways Watkins extends Humboldt's interests into the furthest west? First of all, no, he would not have known Humboldt, but I think that <laughs> by by association, he could not have avoided knowing about Humboldt. All of the San Francisco abolitionist community, the, the Fremonts, Star King, Emerson, they're all so deeply vested in Humboldt that it would have been an act of will not to have been sucked into that. I do think that what Carlton Watkins is doing is understanding that the power of American natural monuments as a metaphor for America's cultural identity and its ambitions both now and for the future was well established by the time that Watkins develops his mammoth plate camera. I've always found it kind of fun that while Charles Wilson Peale was obsessed about an actual mammoth and mammoth scale being something of an emblem for us in the 18 aughts, that Watkins's own camera is the mammoth plate camera carrying the metaphor a bit further. But I do think what Watkins is doing is recognizing that there are iconic landscapes out west that are the same order of magnitude as Natural Bridge or Niagara Falls that have the capacity to become a touchstone for the identification of, in this case, an entire state or, for that matter, the entire further West, American West. And so I think that what you've got is a building on that ethos that landscape has the capacity to send a signal about a country's cultural priorities and ambitions and that what he does is does for California and Yosemite what Frederick Church had done for Niagara and what a number of other artists had done for the Rockies. I think the other thing at play there in terms of, of Humboldt is Watkins is, with one exception about whom we're going to talk in a moment, is the 19th century American artist most interested in science and closest to scientists. Watkins makes work for a series of Eastern botanists and geologists over several decades that is Humboldtian in its specificity, labor, and goals. And that one other artist is, is Frederick Church. And to a significant extent, your entire Humboldt in the United States project builds to Church. How and when do you think Church discovered Humboldt's work? And do you have a guess or knowledge, but more likely a guess, of what work of Humboldt's that would have been? I believe that Frederick Church grew up at a moment where Humboldt had already become the ubiquitous expert on so many different things. Church was born in 1826. By 1829, Almira Lincoln Phelps's book, American Botany, the frontispiece is an adaptation of Humboldt's plant geography map, and she teaches a Humboldtian view of botany. That book will go through multiple iterations for the next three decades. When Louis Agassiz delivers the centennial eulogy address on Humboldt in 1869, he makes a comment that really struck me forcibly when he says, every school child in America has Humboldt as his teacher. They just don't know their teacher's name. And so to me, what that says is that the permeability, the, the the deep saturation of Humboldt's influence meant that even if you weren't reading Humboldt directly, you were essentially reading Humboldt. For Church, 
given the way that he grew up, by the time that he is reading, Humboldt is a ubiquitous force in America. There is no question in my mind that by the time he is working with Thomas Cole in 1846, Humboldt's Cosmos is out. It is the single most significant book that links art and culture that has ever been written. Fully one third of the second volume of Cosmos is advice to landscape painters. And that is where Humboldt's ethos, if you will, is that artists need to know enough science to be able to do justice to their material and that scientists need to remember that there is an aesthetic joy in being in nature that is as important as any of their experiments. And church is really, to the artistic side of that, what Humboldt is to the scientific side. It is like they are two sides of that coin. I cannot imagine church developing as an artist not having been inspired by Humboldt's words to go out and study directly from nature, make those color sketches, amass that portfolio, build your travel notes. And in fact, even Thomas Cole says, you know, he's better at sketching out of doors than I am. He's got the finest eye for drawing in the world. That's the kind of approach that Humboldt was angling for, is someone who would be an extraordinary draftsman, an extraordinary visionary, and someone whose enthusiasm for science kept pace with his abilities as an artist. Do I have proof of when he started reading Humboldt? No, I don't. But given the publication dates on Humboldt and the fact that Cosmos came out in English, volumes one and two, by the time Church is working with Thomas Cole, I have to believe that that's where it starts. And there's, I think, an 1849 edition and maybe two 1849 editions of Humboldt's Cosmos in Church's library to this day. That is exactly right. And in one of them, Church has put a line along in pencil along a passage that talks about the nature of skies and why it's important to catch the character of a sky, that it's different over different types of places, which, of course, is exactly what you would expect to find reverberating around the head of a Hudson River School landscape painter in America. I'm also reminded that as late as the 1880s, Church writes a letter in which he expresses his frustration saying, I wish science would take a 10-year holiday so that I could catch up. This is a man for whom Humboldt is not a flash in the pan. He really is a guiding influence. And I think that although Cosmos clearly sets the tone for Church's artistic career, it's also equally clear that what inspires Church to go to South America is reading Views of the Cordilleras. And that's one of Humboldt's earliest books. It comes out first in 1814 in English. And that that really is his Baedeker. That is his guidebook for taking Cyrus Field through the same four countries in South America that Humboldt had visited almost 50 years earlier. So speaking of skies, and before we get Humboldt into South America, there's a great Instagram account by the artist and photographer Barbara Bosworth that kind of extends that interest into the present. It's Barbara Bosworth weather, all one word. If you're listening, you'll you'll enjoy it, especially in the middle of a pandemic, as I do. Before we get Humboldt into South America, let's get Church into Virginia. A pretty early example of Humboldt and Church having interest in the same terrain, as it were, was in central Virginia on land owned by Thomas Jefferson. So in the early 50s, 50, 51, Church and his collector and patron, Cyrus Field, who, who you just mentioned, 
visited a landscape feature in the foothills of the Appalachians called Natural Bridge. How and in what context did Natural Bridge first become renowned? And what is the great story of Church's painting of it that involves Cyrus Field and a rock? (laughs) In the 1750s, George Washington was a young surveyor. And Lord Rockbridge, who gave the name to Rockbridge County, where Natural Bridge is, asked Washington to do some surveying. And so Natural Bridge was one of the landmarks that Washington ended up surveying. The story has it that Washington clambered up the left-hand side of the arch to about, oh, 29 feet off the ground and carved his initials GW into the rock. And then when Thomas Jefferson owned the land and natural bridge. There was a free man of color named Patrick Henry who was stationed there as an absentee landlord who also gave tours and presumably pointed out those initials. As a result, this was a painting that was also central to my exhibition on the Civil War and American art back in 2012. Works of art being delightfully multivalent, the Humboldtian side of it then became really important to this exhibition because when he and Cyrus Field go to natural bridge, together. Field is a big fan of Jefferson and George Washington. They had just paid a call to Mount Vernon. And when they get to Natural Bridge, Church will end up painting an image that shows Patrick Henry in the foreground, expounding on the virtues of the bridge to a white woman who is seated at his feet. And he is pointing toward that left-hand side of the arch where Washington's initials should be. But when they were on site, Church was only sketching in pencil, and he was scribbling color notes in the margins. And Field was a little antsy about this and said, well, you know, don't you want to take some rock samples back with you? And Church is like, no, I've, I've got this. And so Church continues to sketch in pencil and write in the margins, and Field picks up a couple of rock samples, and they go home. Church paints the picture. He unveils it for Field. Field pops out the rocks. The rocks match in the painting and in Field's hands. And it's this Giotto-like moment of perfection that is kind of a way of saying Church has the finest memory and eye for color of any living artist. And so it's a Humboldtian moment where Church's ability to remember what it is he has seen and use his notes effectively to recreate it at home is part of the power behind the mystique of his entire artistic production. Field and Church are in Virginia in part, in all probability, because they want to see if they're compatible as travel companions before going to South America together. Why does Church want to go to South America? Is it as simple as Humboldt did it, therefore I want to as well? You know, I think actually that is one of the best questions that nobody ever really asks about Frederick Church, which is why on earth did a man who doesn't go to Europe until the 1860s, who never goes west of the Mississippi, why did he decide to go to South America? It's something that I I have to believe that after having read Humboldt, it is a, a tour that is meant to cement the affinity between the two men. I think that Church probably took confidence in making the trip because Humboldt had made it sound like it was such a magical experience. Field was clearly willing to bankroll the whole thing. And I think that the two of them together realized that this was the proof of concept trip for them. I also think that Church's burgeoning interest in the science behind landscape means that 
for him to really understand what Humboldt has written and the ideas that he is positing, he needs to see that specific landscape. He isn't going to be able to extrapolate it by going someplace else, because up until that point, it's really Humboldt who is drawing those inferences back and forth between one part of the globe and another. There is a famous waterfall that Humboldt visited in South America. There is a great engraving of it in his book about indigenous people in South America. And Church went there too and made drawings of it. What is that waterfall? Was Church consciously, intentionally riffing on darn near copying Humboldt's presentation of it? And then why did Church choose a totally different view for his painting of that same waterfall? It's Tecandama Falls near Bogota, Colombia. And there is no question that Church is deliberately following in Humboldt's footsteps to this particular landmark. It is as though he and Field are reading Humboldt the night before and then sallying forth into the landscape the next day. Church keeps a diary, and it is at Olana, Church's home in Hudson, New York. But in that diary, he writes about the fact that they are embarking on this adventure. And the way that Church describes it is drawn specifically from Humboldt's description of trying to figure out what's the approach. He's up at the top of the falls where he feels a totally different climate. It's hot up at the top of the falls, but at the bottom, it's a totally different microclimate. And Church points that out and then reiterates that in a letter home to a family member. Humboldt had hired six local men in order to hack away at the greenery at the base of the Bogota River so that he could make his way up to the base of the falls. What does Church do? Hire six local peons to hack away at the foliage that has built up over the last 50 years so that he can have that same experience. Church does no fewer than four detailed pencil sketches of Tekandama seen from the rim at the top from a distant vantage point, and then two of them as he is making his way up the Bogota River. And he's clearly trying to figure out where his vantage point is. And while Humboldt's tended to be off to one side as though he's hovering halfway up the falls, Church decided to adopt the vantage point of being on the ground, almost in the middle of the Bogota River, looking upward toward the falls. It's a much more dramatic presentation. And I think that one of the things he's trying to get across is the exhilaration, the determination, and the obstacles that he had to overcome in order to achieve that scene. Chimborazo is the great subject of Church's paintings that come from this trip. Before we get to, to Chimborazo itself, can you contextualize for us how early to mid-19th century culture, so both European and American, considered stratovolcanoes? What did they represent? Or what did they recall or promise? There is no question that from the very beginning of Humboldt's career, one of the things he is most interested in is what makes volcanoes erupt. And when he is in South America and he experiences his first earthquake and he experiences volcanic eruptions, he begins to develop the idea that these are not unconnected phenomena. And he believes that volcanics actually play an important role in understanding the way the earth is formed, the way it's torn apart, that it's not just 
water that shapes the planet or air that shapes the planet, but that it's the forces of fire under the Earth's crust that also has an elemental impact on the the scenery that we see today. What comes out of that, though, and it's quickly transferred as a political metaphor when Humboldt returns to Europe, is the notion of a smoking volcano waiting to erupt being a metaphor for incipient revolutionary politics. Simon Bolivar will pick up the metaphor and run with it when he goes back to South America to fight for the independence of his home country of Venezuela from uh, the Spanish Empire, but it will permeate political thought about volcanoes waiting to erupt and the volcano in this sense being the people who are going to rise up and revolt against an oppressive power structure. In American politics, this will become most profoundly associated with the abolitionists who use that volcano metaphor in order to describe a country on the verge of erupting over the issue of slavery. Frederick Douglass's seminal speech, The American Apocalypse, where he talks about the fact that uh, slavery is America's moral volcano waiting to erupt, comes straight out of that Bolivar humble lineage. But it definitely becomes a really powerful metaphor for the destabilization of everything that you thought was solid and predictable underfoot. And that's the, the thing that Humboldt takes away from the experiences of earthquakes and erupting volcanoes is that everything that he thought he could count on, he now has to rethink as something that is in flux. And that is a really powerful metaphor for his life in terms of never taking for granted that something that is received wisdom is in fact the truth, that one does have to then try to understand what's really going on. For church, that volcano tends to operate the same way. It can be peacefully puffing along, minding its own business, but then there is the notion that particularly during the Civil War, that Cotopaxi, which has been puffing along peacefully since 1854 in his first painting of that volcano, is in violent eruption by 1862 when the entire country, the United States, is essentially on fire and coming apart at the seams. So Humboldt's interest in the inner workings of volcanoes and instability does end up feeding into probably the most powerful abolitionist metaphor in the United States. There's probably a great book and show out there in how American thinkers and especially artists looked at and considered volcanoes across the 19th century as a way of charting the development of American intellectualism and particularly in relation to politics. I mean, it, it starts with, you know, the Grand Tour and Aetna and the American artists and Emerson who went there and then continues. I mean, the only American artist who does a convincing volcano before really Bierstadt's second trip to the far west in the 1870s is, of course, Carlton Watkins. Bierstadt took wax at Mount Shasta in northern California in 63 but like pretty much everyone else, including Edward Kern, a survey artist for Fremont, pretty much failed at it. But enough about American volcanoes. Back to South America. What made Chimborazo the great subject of this trip for church? Why was he so interested in so much Chimborazo? Because by the time church goes to South America, Chimborazo is affectionately referred to as Humboldt's Mountain. 
it was considered in the day to be the tallest mountain on the earth. And we can get into the semantics of the Himalayas and how high things are off the equator. But the point was, at the time, Chimborazo was considered to be the tallest peak on earth. The French climber Condamine had made it a substantial distance up the side of Chimborazo 30 years before Humboldt got there. And Humboldt was thrilled to be able to make it very close to the summit. There was a final crevasse that they simply could not pass, but he made it to 19,413 feet. It was a climbing record that stood for 30 years. And what Humboldt found when he was climbing Chimborazo was he attributes to that arduous climb and descent the crystallization of his prevailing understanding of the unity of nature. He is watching the way that different plant types give way to others as he's literally going from a tropical environment at the base of the mountain up to an Arctic environment at the top. And Humboldt comes down and realizes that as he has gone vertical up Chimborazo, he could also have gone latitudinally from the equator to the North Pole or the South Pole and achieved the same kind of shift and progression in biodiversity. And that becomes the XY axis for the rest of Humboldt's career in being able to correlate what grows at certain altitudes and under certain climactic conditions going up a mountain, but also moving northward toward the poles. And what Church comes away with is the realization that this is the mountain climbing experience that was the aha moment for Humboldt. And I think he is looking to see if he will have something similar to that. Church also makes paintings of other South American volcanoes, Cotopaxi, which you mentioned, Cayambe. Do the different volcanoes mean different things for him or are, or is he just having a good time with some volcanoes? I think he's picking up on Humboldt's assignment of values to each of them. Cotopaxi is the perfect cinder cone. Cayambe is the most beautiful volcano. Chimborazo is the tallest volcano. Sangui is the most unpredictable volcano. And so each one of them has a personality. And I think that Church is trying to capture that. And I think, I think that maybe comes across best in the oil sketches, many of which are in the show and in the book. They're at the Cooper Hewitt. We'll have a bunch of them on, on manpodcast.com. Church's most famous painting then and now is, of course, the Great Niagara, formerly at the Corcoran, now assumed into the National Gallery's collection. What makes it a Humboldtian painting? What makes it a Humboldtian painting is that synergy between science and art. It comes out of a critical jab that Church receives the year before when he debuts Tekendama Falls. And the critic says Church shouldn't paint water because he can't. And I think at that point, Church rallies to that criticism, goes to Niagara Falls, sketches over a hundred works in pencil and in oil, resolutely looking to capture the dance and play of moving water. It's almost a Leonard-esque kind of commitment to understanding how water operates, both in terms of science and in art. He goes home, he paints Niagara Falls, which is as close to a panorama as Church is ever going to get, which is a format that Humboldt has written, favors the, the kind of large-scale impressive landscape paintings. He paints it as a tour de force combination of science and art with a lot of national pride thrown into it, and then debuts it and quite literally leaves almost the next day for South America for this four-month intensive trip 
to Chimborazo as though what he is doing is saying, okay, I've answered your criticism. I have painted a magnum opus, and now I'm off to go better it one more time. Is Heart of the Andes the painting at the Met that Church paints in the very, very late antebellum years, 1859, a summary of his address of Humboldt, kind of a magnum opus type summary? It is. It it really is his visual articulation of Humboldt's cosmos. But more importantly to me, he's using Humboldt's plant geography map, the Naturgemalde, as his template, not just in terms of the idea that it's centered on Chimborazo and that it, it basically contains all of the atmospheric and biodiverse information that runs from sea level all the way up to the top of, of the Andean peaks. But what he's really doing is he's using it as a visual template for understanding how that map became the infographic that summarizes Humboldt's idea of the unity of nature. It is his first pictorial proof of concept for that animating idea that will really characterize the rest of of Humboldt's career. So for Church, it's almost as though that's the color sketch that he uses that helps him set the composition determine the parameters going literally from the Amazon River Basin all the way up to the Andean summit, and to incorporate the same density of information that Humboldt packed into that one visual piece. And so I think it is a deliberate homage. I think it is a deliberate summation. The fact that he was working with his dealer to create the work and send it to Berlin. He had Bayard Taylor, who had met Humboldt, write a letter for him in German to Humboldt saying, you know, Frederick Church is the artist that you longed for. He went to follow in your footsteps. This is the painting he wants you to see, means that It was absolutely deliberate, and it must have been crushing to Church to realize that, you know, days after he puts this painting on view, he is working out the travel arrangements. He's deciding, according to one press report, to travel with the picture to Berlin to meet Humboldt, and then finds out that Humboldt had died 10 days earlier. And the New York Times basically mourns on Church's behalf and says it's like he lost a good friend, even though the two men had never met. So, you know, to me, what Church had in mind for that painting was something truly gargantuan. By that time, the imprimatur of having Humboldt say nice things about you could really boost your career. And I can imagine that Church, at this point in his life, having, you know, achieved the pinnacle of success that he had with Niagara, was being asked to then better it and to continue to improve on that, that this was the painting that if it came with a letter from Humboldt basically extolling what he had done is exactly the kind of next step that he would envision for his career. In 1848, Church had made a painting called, or that we know today anyway, as to the memory of Cole. He made it after Thomas Cole's death. It features a, a spotlit cross in the foreground landscape, a, a suggestion of, of, of Cole's grave, a memorial painting. There is a cross in the lower left-hand side of To the Heart of the Andes. Is that for Humboldt? Did Church add it? I doubt it. Humboldt 
was as close to an avowed atheist as you're going to find extolling spirituality in nature. And I suspect that may have been one of the reasons that Thomas Cole himself never overtly embraces Humboldt. There are a lot of people who are deeply uncomfortable with the fact that Humboldt never in any of his works mentions a creator or a higher intelligence. It is all about a natural ethos and a sense of spirit resonant in nature without attaching it to God. Church is a congregationalist. He's a deeply devout man, and his last name provides the great visual pun for all of that. And so my guess is that the cross in the heart of the Andes is not so much for Humboldt as much as it is, I think, for the understanding that in America, landscape painting takes that Humboldtian ethos and then uses it as a spiritual pilgrimage as well as a cultural one. Eleanor Harvey, thank you. You're welcome, Tyler. It's been always a pleasure. The Nasher Sculpture Center is ready to welcome you back. Kick off the fall season with a stroll through the Nasher Garden and visit today to see Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture, the first U.S. Museum survey of works that combine 3D scanning technologies with traditional sculpture techniques. Whether online or in person, find new ways to enhance your visit, from time ticketing, weekly music performances, to expanded digital content on the Nasher app. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view through February 7th, 2021 at the Pulitzer, is Terry Adkins Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Atkins' literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next, I'll be joined by Adrian L. Child, the curator of Riffs and Relations, African-American Artists in the European Modernist Tradition. It's at the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. It returns when the Phillips reopens on October 15th. The museum has extended the exhibition through January 3rd, 2021. Rifts and Relations offers works by African-American artists of the 20th and 21st centuries, alongside works of the European modernists whose work they engaged. The exhibition catalog includes contributions from Childs, Renee Maurer, Valerie Castle-Oliver, and Dorothy Kaczynski. It was published by Rizzoli Electa, Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about $43. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. We'll also have a link to where you can pick up time tickets to see the exhibition at the Phillips. Adrian L. Childs, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Starting in, say, 1925, who and what most brought European modernism to the particular attention of African-American artists? I think that it was Elaine Locke who can be identified as the who that brought African art to the attention of the most African-American artists. And that's due to his publications, The New Negro, 
and his kind of evangelical work almost in, in touting the, the spirit of modernism through, in, in many ways, through engaging with African art in terms of a visual idiom in order to create an African-American or quote-unquote Negro spirit in art. There's a lot of artists and thinkers who are trying to revisualize what does it mean to be a modern Negro, as a new Negro as opposed to an old quote-unquote Negro, the stereotypes. And one of the ways was to create a new kind of aesthetic that in many ways was channeled through African art. And then, and of course, those links, the, the links to African art were in some artists channeled through European modernists who were engaging with this material at the turn of the century. So Elaine Locke kind of brought that to the attention of African-American artists. And there's also a lot of exhibitions, a few exhibitions that were very important in Brooklyn. You know, there's a big exhibition of African art in Brooklyn and then MoMA in the 1930s. So there was a big pylon, if you will, of influences as the exhibition demonstrates that many of them were channeled through this sort of avant-garde artists in Europe. Was there a philosophical underpinning or point of address within modern European modernism to which African-American artists could relate or wanted to, to access for their own work? Well, I think that the uh, avant-garde were trying to define something new in, in European avant-garde in contradistinction to traditional European art, conservative art. And of course, African-American artists who are coming together as a kind of a critical mass in the early 20th century were also trying to define something new in contradistinction to how they were represented by the larger community. So they are both trying to define themselves in relation to the larger community, but also trying to define themselves as artists who are can be seen as a part of the larger art community. So therefore, African-American artists, some of them were remained very conservative. So what philosophical underpinnings, I'm thinking of the notion of the primitive white as an interesting or a, a compelling way of living without the constraints of society as, as what the European avant-garde was considering with these objects that were representative of a raw kind of emotion or in a raw, a raw spirit, a raw creative spirit. I don't know that that is what was compelling African-American artists. I think that they were really interested in the links to Africa that they have as a community and the claim that this is their ancestry and they need to be able to not just access it, understand it, use it to create new forms uh, for the 20th century. In these years, there's also a graphic designer and illustrator, a, a German-American who is important to the early part of your story. Who is he and how did, how did he and Locke get together or come to know each other? His name is Winhold Reis. And of course, he come, comes from Germany to live in uh, New York. And I think that the publisher, Locke's publisher, introduces him as an illustrator. That's what I think. But to be honest, I'm not sure. So that was a fact that we need to check on. But 
he was someone who was interested in Native Americans. Rice was someone who was interested in, quote unquote, uh, Native peoples, Native Americans, African Americans. And he also had a reputation as a, a an accomplished designer. And I think that Locke felt he would be a good example. And I also think that Locke was somewhat Eurocentric in a way and wanted to bring together different people who were in the field that could help to kind of encourage and foster and nurture this movement that he's trying to trying to grow. That brings us to the American artists in in the show. And I think going from Rice to Aaron Douglas might be the right transition. Douglas, more than any American artist, save probably Marsden Hartley, learns from European modernism without quoting it. He he absorbs it and invents without needing to to lean on it or cite it. What did he take from Europe and what does he come forward with that is solely his own, solely American? It's interesting because Douglas's early work that we use in the show, the work that relates to the new Negro movement, the Harlem Renaissance, like his aspects of Negro life, this style is what we think of as his signature style that is both modern American and, and is influenced by Cubism and influenced directly by Rice's kind of art deco, quote, Afro deco kind of aesthetic. He synthesizes it so well, like you say, that it's, it's almost difficult to pinpoint what is he getting from Europe, right? And what is he, what is it that is his only, what is it that is kind of American? So because he, he brings it together so well, but he then goes on later in his career and does a lot of work that we would might even call impressionist because this style, he, he keeps coming back to, that's the style that many of his institutions that commission his work, like Fisk University later commissions him to do murals and many of that, this is the style that he is known for. But he also has another much more kind of European style, but but, but that's not really relevant to this. Your question is, what is he is he picking up from Europe? I think he's getting a distilled sort of second generation Cubist aesthetic that he immediately begins to combine with this kind of art deco, almost decorative bent because he was also an illustrator and he illustrated books and did a lot of interiors in terms of murals. And so it's it's kind of a, a decorative graphic aesthetic that is very singular in many ways. Now, not all of the African-American commentators on this were in love with what, what he was doing. Um, later on, one of very important scholar, James A. Porter, was thinking that perhaps Douglas and and those who were following Locke's call toward looking at African aesthetics were limiting themselves. So it's kind of a really interesting quagmire when you're talking about modernism, whether or not the African-American artists are looking to European modernism, whether they're looking to African art, and how that is playing out in real time among people who are trying to come to terms with the idea that African-American artists have to separate themselves or distinguish themselves in their own voices, not only to distinguish themselves as artists within the American landscape, 
but to determine an aesthetic that will speak to their history, their needs, their identities. It's a very tough kind of position to be in. But I think Douglas was very successful with it, even though it is so stylized as to be more of a fantasy of Africa than some kind of quote-unquote authentic Africa. Which... Presuming he was aware of the way in which French modernists adapted the French decorative tradition to their needs and interests, Matisse, the great example, especially in, in the 40s and 50s, I mean, before too, but but in America in the 40s and 50s, but that idea of of kind of the fantasy land of of the French garden, for example, or the French landscape in in the modernist decorative tradition lives large. So why shouldn't Douglas adapt parts of it for his uses here. Oh, absolutely. There have been a number of sizable Aaron Douglas shows in the United States over the decades, which is all the more remarkable considering that so much of his major work, you know, you have to go see it. It's 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 murals in, in New York or at, at Fisk, for example. Hale Woodruff has not gotten the same exhibition attention Douglas has. How does he discover European modernism? You know, whereas whereas Douglas takes whole cloth and goes all in on flatness and adapting it to his purposes, Woodruff is at times a little sneakier. What is what is his way of addressing the European new? Well, Hale Woodruff was in sort of a, a case a case study. I looked at his work as a case study because. I follow his trajectory where he's introduced to European modernism through a gift that's given to him by a gallerist where, when he's a young uh, man in uh, Indianapolis. And he's given the book Africanische Plastique, which is the precursor to Negerplastique by Carl Einstein. And that was a very important publication that influenced German expressionists and and European modernists across the board early in the 20th century. Anyway, it's a book of, of images of African art that's, that are kind of decontextualized and treated as art. There's also text in the book, but he couldn't read the text. But what, what it does is it excites him about the possibilities of African art. And it's kind of a patronizing thing. This, his, this German dealer who gave Woodruff and said, this, these are for, by your people, <laughs> And so he should inspire you. But so that's the kind of an attitude. But but it actually, of course, it did inspire him. And, and he has no he had no problems talking about that later. And he in, ends up being very influenced by Locke and his call to arms. Locke is telling artists, African-American artists, look to Picasso and Durin and Matisse to see what they're doing with with African arts and Woodruff ends up going to Paris and, and is there with other African-American artists and poets and writers who early in the 20th century are searching out something. And it's almost like a, like a, the, the grand tour, if you will, not quite as luxurious because they were struggling for money, but they're there, they're looking at art in all the museums and he becomes, he starts collecting African objects that are in the flea markets and curio shops in Paris. So he's, kind of step by step going through this process and we see in the work the card players which is set set in paris in 1930 how he is incorporating extreme flatness and spatial uh, flatness and collapsing and and um, sort of picasso's 
Cubist angles. And he's also very much influenced by Cezanne. He sees Cezanne there. There's a big Cezanne retrospective there that year where the piece, Cezanne's piece, The Card Players, is exhibited. So you see kind of, we're able to kind of document as he goes along how, at what touch points he's he is uh, getting his influence and information. What and what does he do with that? He he comes up with his painting, the card players, and the card players goes back to the United States and is exhibited with the Harmon Foundation and sent around the country as an example of the Negro artists who are engaging with modernism and who are engaging with African art. So it, it's interesting how we can kind of tell the story. I mean, these are the things that we say as professors and art historians, we talk about influence and everything, but we are able to at least really document and hail Woodruff's journey in that way, because he did talk about it later on in his interview with the Archives of American Art. So he's a case in point that shows us how artists are, are constantly renegotiating, negotiating these different influences and make, how they make them their own. And then he continues to evolve as time goes on and, and absorbs just like all other artists, absorbs the influences and comes up with his own styles. But he has two tracks. He has the mural track, which is sort of a socialist track. And he also has this kind of modernist aesthetic that he continues to develop into pure abstraction later on in his later years. There's a great moment in Woodruff's card players behind one of the card playing figures. There is a stylized checkerboard, um, a grid, just kind of this great wink in the back middle of the, of, of the painting. We'll have an image of that, of course, on on manpodcast.com. We will come back to Woodruff later. But before we do, let's talk about William H. Johnson. You write in in the book about how Haim Soutine was important to Johnson. Why do you think Johnson gravitated towards Soutine? I think it was a purely aesthetic choice. I think that Johnson's tastes were very much expressionist. And if you look at his work, he was living in Europe at the time and traveling around. He was looking at some Northern European artists and he was drawn to the expressionist style. Johnson does a a few interviews and and, and writes some letters and interviewed with a reporter, an American reporter, but you don't hear his voice quite as much as you do some of the other artists. So it's hard to really pinpoint a motivation, but we know that he really almost trained under him, if you will, because when I think of some of these artists who, who I won't say copy, but who work after other artists consistently, it's almost like they're, tra- it's a training process. And um, this is what he did with Soutine and his landscapes. And it led him to his own, his, his own style eventually. And, and he even followed in Soutine's footsteps going down to the south of France to Cagnes-sur-Mer and standing in the spot where Soutine was painting to revisit these spaces and, and translate them into his own versions, very much kaleidoscopic uh, as Soutine's were. The nude is not a form much important in, in most of the American art tradition, Horace Pippin, of course, noticed that in his great Lady of the Lake uh, at the Met and kind of winkingly, chucklingly added added a nude to the great American subject of landscape in one of my favorite great weird paintings of all time. <laughs> and Johnson makes a nude in 1939. It's in the show. It's in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's collection. It's a, 
a clear plain riff on on Manet and Olympia. Is there a reason other than the obvious Manet precedent that Johnson wanted to do so something so outside the American tradition? I would say that Johnson is not only responding to Manet, but possibly responding to Picasso and Matisse. And it's very much outside of the American tradition and very much outside of the African-American tradition, if you will. Women's bodies, Black women's bodies being the subject of exploitation historically, we we don't see as many Black men artists or women artists engaging the nude before the 1970s. So I think that this it is unusual for him, but I do think he was really responding to the modernist nude. It's also interesting that she is very much American, <laughs> and she is a woman of a voluptuous woman. She is not an idealized woman. And again, she does, I think, and most people would look at it and think she reflects his response to Manet's Olympia, particularly with the, the bouquet of flowers in the back. She's very different. I mean, she's she might even be someone he, he knows in his hometown. I mean, it's very, very unusual and enigmatic, really. And it's 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 somewhat eroticized, if you will. The large behind the, the bottle that is uh, phallically placed. And so he is still a male artist. <laughs> and we see those elements coming out in this. So I think it's a very unusual painting. The textile is unusual, too. His wife is a textile artist, and I think they were probably North African textiles, maybe, or I know they, they, he actually went to North Africa. One of the earliest African-American artists to travel in Africa, I think Tanner was probably one of the first African-American artists, Henry O. Tanner, to go to Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, and William H. Johnson went a little uh, later. So there's a lot going on in this painting, and but it's so unusual that I think that it's 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 almost anticipates. I think I wrote in the book it anticipates the feminist re- reclamation of the nude, even though I don't call it. I don't think it's necessarily a feminist piece. <laughs> I don't think he's a proto-feminist, but I do think that he is reclaiming something, and consciously looking at the black body as something that is worthy of this kind of uh, attention. You have anticipated my transition Um, (laughs) because my my next question was going to be, is there a point at which or a precipitating event that causes American artists, African-American artists to go from joining and engaging European modernism directly to having a more critical point of address. I, I was when I was doing this project, I thought of what periodizations would emerge, uh, and you notice that there's nothing really from the 70s here, are <laughs> the the Black Arts Movement, the Black Power Movement. So there are periodizations. There appeared the early part where you African American art is a modernist project. It is born with modernism and entangled with modernism. Period. But when you come to the 60s, 70s, when you, the Black Arts, Black Power Movement comes along and there's a concerted effort to reject 
anything that seems like you're relying on whiteness, relying on European Eurocentricity uh, and Afrocentricity becomes more certainly more important. I don't, I didn't find anything, and I also was very, it was very important to me that to understand if the artist's intention was not to engage with modernism in whatever way they engaged it, then I didn't want to assume or say, well, it looks like it, so therefore it must be, even though I'm, I could probably find artists in there who I, we could pinpoint and say, oh, they were clearly influenced by this or that. Anyway, the point here is, when do they start turning things, when do things start turning around? And I would say in the 50s and 60s, we, we don't want to isolate African-American artists. There are people out there that American pop artists who are looking at the history of art, who are seeing themselves as criticizing sort of this postmodern, if you will, critique of, of art history or the way art history is even told. So Larry Rivers, for instance, I think is a big impact on Bob Thompson. So Bob Thompson is working in the late 50s and early 60s, and he's in the context of other artists who are riffing on the canon. And so he begins to look at this European art and incorporate European art history. Bob Colescott is doing the same thing in the in the 50s and the 60s. So I think that it's a bigger, it's they're part of the bigger transition into the kind of postmodernism. Colescott, particularly with his wicked sense of humor, he is a pivot in a way uh, that is, I don't know, feels to me pretty sudden and he gets away with it because because we're in on the joke, because he's, he's, he's making tradition the punchline and, and makes sure we know that he knows that we all know it. <laughs> exactly. And if you look at someone like Romare Bearden, who is also working along these years and who's very much engaged with art history and sees himself as part of this lineage, if you will, his work doesn't have that edge uh, and that Cole Scott's work is like a, a, a sledgehammer. So they're, they're, they start splitting off, right? And then one influences the other. But I don't want to think of African-American art as something that is contained and, and, and it moves along in its own bubble. Because as this whole project shows, there's semi-permeable membranes or there are no membranes. And we need to start looking at how Black artists uh, are part of a very big tapestry. So, so tapestry and textile, we'll, we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> But while we're talking about this kind of transitional period or, or artists who, who, who kind of have a foot in, in several places at once, I want to talk about Elizabeth Catlett. There's, there's a story that pops up again and again throughout the book of a, a black American artist having been pointed to African art, African sculpture perhaps, by a friend or teacher. And that nudge seems to have been read by the artist as a kind of art world permission or confirmation that it's okay to engage with Africa directly rather than having Africa mediated by, by Europe. And the story of Catlett here is represented by her late sculpture, Ife. Ife as a place, of course, is an ancient Yoruban city in southern modern-day Nigeria. But Catlett's sculpture refers as much to forms she accessed from a Russian-born French sculptor she knew. What did she put together and how did she do it? 
It's interesting that you say that the this is a recurring story throughout the book and in terms of the influence of perhaps a European teacher or some someone. And in her case, we know that she, she talked about Zadkine and how he not only taught her about form, she talks about negative space, car, direct carving, but she also talked about him introducing her to African art. But I would say that it would have come anyway. So, uh, but she does, she does uh, talk about that. And it would have come to all of these artists anyway, but, but there's a point at which they remember a teacher or a mentor. So it's interesting how she, again, she's synthesizing too. Perhaps the best, best of the best are the ones who, who can synthesize influence and, and to create something completely unique. But of course her work, I love this piece, Ife, because it does represent not not only her, her her beautiful craftsmanship, and if you'd see it in, in person, it's it's really stunning. And there is a very large head, the head is extends behind almost like a big headdress. I mean, you can't see that in this photo, but she's synthesizing sizing her interest in pre-Columbian sculpture. She's synthesizing her interest in African work and modernist sculpture. I mean, there's Henry Moore all over this piece, and. She and she's also looking to create an aesthetic that is sort of pan-ethnic, because she does live in Mexico. She's an expatriate. She's lived there, married, had children, and she's thinking about women's issues and the history of of women who are workers, the men, women who are activists, and the power of women. And so she's really trying to create something that is both rooted in race and transcends race. And, and it's through this multi-dimensional aesthetic there. And then by naming it Ife, she's, of course, talking about the, the great civilization that produced what people think of as a classical sculpture, classical African sculpture. And some, of course, racist naysayers would think that they thought that perhaps Egyptians came down to present-day Nigeria and created this advanced sculpture so, but it is a proud kind of history in terms of the history of art. And she's recalling that through an, op an object that really is, represents a reclining nude in the, in the very much the European tradition and the tradition of Matisse and the tradition of Henry Moore. And in the exhibition, we have it installed in the room with Matisse's large seated nude. And the, the relationship there is just stunning and, and, and really beautiful. We didn't even expect it until we put them in the same room together because they were not the two that I had intended to have in conversation, but uh, we see the, the, the beautiful relationships. So I think that Elizabeth Catlett really hits the mark when it comes to trying to, to riffing and relating. <laughs> Catlett's Ife and Matisse's sculptures, the women in those works have more presence, confidence, self-assertion, than you ever get in, in a Picasso. And, and so, yes, I, I, that sounds like a great pairing. I mentioned wanting to come back to Hale Woodruff, and, and now's, now's the time. As artists are beginning to interrogate European modernism and indeed European tradition, Woodruff sails in with Africa and the Bull from about 1958, which is both Titian-esque and... And, and then he really loads it up. What is Woodruff doing in, in this extraordinary painting? Well, he is, without a doubt, responding to Titian's Europa and the Bull, uh, or the Rape of Europa. 
and this is an origin story. The the no, the name Europe, right, is told in in mythology, of course, that this is how Europe is named through this woman who's carried off Europa, who's carried off by the bull and then and dropped in in another land, which becomes Europe. So, I think that knowing him and, and as erudite as he was, thinking that perhaps the origin story of Western civilization is not necessarily Europe, but it may be Africa, correct? Uh, so I think there's a, a clear kind of political message there. And of course, he's completely absorbed his Cubist aesthetic that he was trying out, rehearsing in, in Paris in, the 19, in 1930. And it's come to define his work here, but it is very much in the 1950s kind of style, if you will. But I think he's positing the notion that not only is Africa an origin story, but that an African woman has that kind of beauty. And, and, the, and the African woman can can be a reclining nude, just like we saw with William H. Johnson. I never even thought of those two as being related. But there is this relation, this sticking point of this reclining nude woman that comes up so much in European art and is railed against, as we will probably talk about with postmodern feminist artists. But this, this is very much a, a, a trope of European art, this reclining nude. I, I also read the painting as a critique of imperialism and colonialism. The bull in Woodruff's painting is white, and the, the nude is painted entirely in black, although, of course, there's some slightly lighter lines so that we can delineate the figure, if that makes sense. We'll have an image <laughs> on bandpodcast.com. But yeah, it also reads to me as a, as a, as a critique of uh, European colonialism. We've been talking about how artists address Europe and modernism and Africa in the content of their work, rather less than we've been talking about how they've done it in the forms of their work. But that happens too. And a great example is Emma Amos. In the early 90s, Amos is looking extra intently at Matisse and wonderfully at Matisse. Why then? And, 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 and how is she addressing him? Again, well, we can draw back and see her addressing many of these powerful European modernists and powerful European artists, uh, male artists. Going back to the 70s, yeah. So she is a concert. Her concerns seem to be fairly consistent in terms of dealing with that power structure within the art world. But there is a moment where she becomes really interested in specific artists like Matisse, like Gauguin, and, and their relationship to her as an art, her own status as an artist, right, as well, and her own voice as an artist, as a Black female artist. And so this work that she is has put together, which is fairly enigmatic and perhaps tongue-in-cheek, perhaps very tongue-in-cheek, Mal Malcolm X, Morley, Matisse, and me. But she puts her own name, her own self, into the the equation here, as she does in some of the other self-portraits as our other artists. And what's interesting here is that we don't know which figure she is. <laughs> is she the reclining nude, the seated nude sculpture by Matisse, or is she the blue nude? Right. And how why is she putting Malcolm X into Malcolm X Morley and re obviously referencing the African-American activist Malcolm X and then the uh, British artist Malcolm Morley with a she represents a painting by him in the background, a watercolor. 
as well as a very mysterious photograph by Shivery, George Shivery. So this is, an uh, again, an enigmatic representation of um, that deals with art's power structures. It deals with the nude. And it also indicates, I think, that she is not trying to destroy this history of art. I think she, there's a certain amount of interest in it and respect for it, but there's also... A, a, a desire to level kind of the playing field and, and to and to disrupt what is an old boys kind of network. So how how does she come to it? I think that again, this is in an era when many artists in the '90s, '80s, and '90s are concerned with these, particularly black artists, are making their mark on the tyranny of art's history and the way art history is told, the way it's it's exhibited and the, the power that the museums wield. I mean, many of these artists, particularly this piece by Emma Amos, comes right after a big Matisse show at the Museum of Modern Art. And after a while, if you're an outsider, if you're not being sort of incorporated into this machine, the art world machine, you can address it in your art. And actually, you can get a little bit more attention by doing that. I mean, it is also a way of drawing attention to yourself. Her painting is bordered by African fabrics. She clearly knew that Matisse loved African textiles, owned African textiles, was frequently photographed with them, represented them in his work. And she's going a step further by foregrounding them in her art object on a, on, on a par with the painted surface, which I think is pretty, pretty neat, something she does a good, a good bit. Speaking of Matisse, what do you think attracted Barbara Chase Rabot to Matisse's backs? I see Barbara Chase Rabot as a consummate formalist, and I see in some ways Matisse's backs as being representative of the power of, of formalism on, on a grand scale in terms of in terms of his own work. Those are very large sculptures. I mean, grand scale. And so I, I feel like she she was interested in this form of the stele that Matisse's back is, is, is what she calls a stele, like a large slab. And she has done many, many series of these, these works. And in this one, I feel like she's really just interested in how Matisse was able to distill the human body down to a large, heavy metal forms that suggest the back but also become completely abstract. And this was an, an instance where I think the artist is just purely interested in the way another artist has sort of accomplished something that they admire. The last big topic I, w- I, w- I want to bring up is a person, David Driscoll. Driscoll makes, taught, collects. How might your project, this show and book, provide ways into considering or addressing the influence of his career or careers for that matter? That's very interesting because David Driscoll is not only was a mentor, but is someone who I consider quote unquote, a Renaissance man, if you will, who is both an artist, a collector, a teacher, curator, and, and a philosopher in many ways, and has always been open to understanding the complexities of African-American art production or art produced by African-Americans and always interested in understanding 
not not only the the ancestral lineages to African art, but how important it is to for artists be open to travel to uh, understanding the way art history in and of itself. In other words, he's an artist and an art historian, and these things go hand in hand with his own artistry. And as a writer, I mean, he was writing about the image of the Black, if you will, in Western art years and years ago. And he was incorporating these the issue of race and representation into his consideration of how artists in his own time are are working. And so he's always been someone who is open to different interpretive strategies. And I think that one of the reasons why I was even thinking about this book was because I worked with him for so many years personally and saw not only in his work, his interest in people like Rouault or Matisse or Juan Gris, and I and I felt that it was something that got lost because the way we talk about African-American art often is circumscribed around the experience of race in the United States or the experience of the longing for or the dream of sort of uh, an a- Africa and how it bubbles up in our work or or how it is a possible future. But I think that this is how we think about African-American art and circumscribed along those lines. But I always felt that there was other ways that we could open it up and and still talk about it without letting the European aspects of it dominate or take up all the space in the room uh, if we did things intelligently. So he's a very good example. Of that. And the way and just the way he lives. I mean, I know him personally, so I know his home is 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 almost like a a museum and it's open to people coming through and uh, artists and lots of books and lots of art and and so kind of eclectic uh, way of living and an appreciation for the interior life of art and so i think that there's a, uh, his influence has been great on me i was unfortunately only able to bring one piece of his into the show i would have had many more had i not had to includes so many other other artists but his his work has sort of allowed me to think of ways of looking at art differently in the catalog my colleague wrote a wonderful essay on Duncan Phillips and the black community in DC and Renee Mao wrote a wonderful essay on Duncan Phillips and his relationship to the black uh, community the arts community in DC and David Driscoll is part of that particularly the Barnett Aiden collection and the early in the 1950s how the and 40s the gallery encouraged sort of integrated arts exhibitions and Phillips loaned um, work European work from his collection to Howard University Art Gallery where Alonzo Aiden and um, James Herring exhibited works of African American and European art together or just works of European art would come in for the students at Howard. So there was a much more integrationist, if you will, spirit during that time. And I know that Driscoll worked at the gallery and was very much part of that. And that's one of the ways he had a kind of expansive view from an early perspective as as an arts professional. So we really have almost forgotten about how Washington, D.C. was was kind of at the forefront of uh, a lot of these arts, the arts community thinking of itself 
as something more expansive and, 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 and less limited. But then later on, you have 1960s and 70s coming together and, and the idea of the black arts excluding white artists and being completely sort of separated was a sign of power and control. And, we, and it kind of eclipsed what was going on earlier. I had not known that Driscoll and Alma Thomas used to visit the Phillips together, particularly on Sundays, says the essay. <laughs> the Phillips was welcoming to African-Americans in Washington, and as more so than some of the other institutions. And they were also collecting, I mean, of course, they collected the Jacob Lawrence migration series, half of that. That was a big coup early and um, have been at the forefront of Jacob Lawrence exhibitions and research for quite a while. Acquired an early Sam Gilliam, 67. That was his first major museum acquisition was from the Phillips. So I think Duncan Phillips, he had a particular taste, but he was certainly interested in in art that was not limited to racial designations or to temporal designations. And you would exhibit works from different eras altogether to talk about their as opposed to their differences. Adrian L. Childs, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.